Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 55, The Killing Fields Movie Review. here this is pop goes your world that is yancey eaton he is back as of last week so it's great to have him back again yancey what's going on brother hey man it's uh still good to be back um we're going to semi-regular schedule now uh we didn't record on friday we had to push back a couple days but still this is two weeks in a row which is a big step for us concerned the last month and a half so uh glad to get back into the general flow of things and uh we talked a little bit off air but today i think is actually like the coldest uh, day that we've had in like the last calendar year in Florida. It's like 61 degrees here. It's frigid. Um, I mean, how are you holding up in Canada? Yeah, it's a little bit cold today too. I'm not going to lie. It's about 10 degrees. Now we have Celsius in Canada, <laughs> so you got to like double it and add 30. So it's about 50 degrees. So yeah, it's pretty cold. Yeah, it's still cold. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's pretty chilly. But yeah, no, it sounds like it's uh, pretty cold down there. I wanted to tell you, you know, the, the new Star Wars movie, Star Wars The Last Jedi, it's coming out in, in December. Now the thing is, it's coming out, it opens, I guess, December 15th. And this happened the last time that a Star Wars movie came out two years ago, not the, not Rogue One but like in the regular, like you know, in the regular ongoing big pictures um, when, um, when The Force Awakens came out here. It came out in Canada a day early, okay? So it was available in Canada. So I went up on the Thursday we, I took my son and we got in line for like two hours and we went to see Star Wars The Force Awakens a day early. So I saw it you know, before everyone else did in the States. And so they're doing the same thing this year. So I go online and I'm like, oh, it's available a day early. It's, it's available on the 14th of December, on the Thursday. This is great. And the thing is, you can buy those 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 tickets now for those special seats, you know, the ones that move and kind of shake and all that kind of stuff. And those right. are those are assigned seats. So you actually get like row J, like row J seats one and two or whatever, right? So it's like an actual like concert or something. To yeah. You know where you're sitting. It's, a, awesome. it's assigned seating for those seats. Okay. So I thought I want to get those because I mean, it's fun to move around in the seat or whatever. But more importantly, I like the assigned seating. I don't have to worry about, you know, getting there two hours ahead of time so that I don't, I'm not, you know, sitting like right in front of the screen or something like that. Right. Sure. Yeah. So I go online and I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be open a day early. This is great. It's open on December 14th. This is the greatest thing ever. Seven o'clock is the first show. I go in, I buy two tickets, me and my son, good to go, print off the tickets, go upstairs, say to my wife, guess what? It's available a day early. Trent and I are going, you know, on the Thursday. She's like, no, you're not. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not going on the Thursday? She said, that's your, I, we have another son. He's four, Sean. She's like, that's Sean's birthday on the 14th. I'm like, oh, man. I'm like, well, you know, he's four. Like, technically, we can, like, have, like, a little party, and then we can just, like, leave. She's like, yeah, you're not leaving. It ain't happening. So I had to go in and get a refund for the tickets, and I got them for Saturday instead. So, uh, oh, well, it's all good. Kids ruin everything, I guess. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame the kids in this case, but don't tell them. I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, are you ready to get started this week? Yeah, let's do it. Oh, let's go. Nancy, what the hell are you doing to me? There's a girl topless in it. I mean, I'm sure you, you probably have seen it. Boom, 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 yeah. boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Spoilers yeah. ahead. But he was not my favorite pilot of any of these Star Wars movies. That, of course, was, was Porkins. He might be one of my favorite actors. That's some good shit. I think that's fair. I do think that's fair. The fact that we're kind of nerds. Textbook nerds. I thought I was looking at my mother's old but that's in Ohio. How disappointed was your son whenever you said, I'm going to go take you to see Bare Naked Ladies? And he's like, oh, it's just a concert. What is going <laughs> on, man? 
Okay, so this week the movie uh, was was a Gen X movie. It's one that I got to, uh, to to nominate. So I went ahead and nominated The Killing Fields from 1984. So Yancey, I've been throwing a lot of comedies at you. That's for sure. Uh, this week I decided to go a completely different way and I made you watch The Killing Fields. Were you a little bit surprised that it wasn't a comedy that I threw at you? I was surprised, but also very proud of you and excited. <laughs> as soon as you mentioned this, like the very second that I actually looked it up and started reading, you know, like the Wikipedia page, just to get mm-hmm. kind of get a feel of what genre of film it was, I was like, okay, this is pretty interesting. This is something I could get into. And as I watched it, I mean, it is a long film, but I really, really dug it. Really got into it. I'm gonna go ahead and, and get this out front now. This is this is by far the best film that you've recommended that we do a review for on the podcast. Oh, thank goodness. So it's so a complete change from Revenge on the Nerds, then you're saying, which was the worst one that I nominated, right? Correct. Yes. Well, I'm glad That's that wrong. you enjoyed it. I'm glad you liked it. So what were some of the things that you liked about it? Um, so you and I, we've talked about this a little bit off air before. Um, to you guys that don't know, uh, Chris and I, we kind of uh, – I know, Chris, at one point you were a journalism major in college or you took journalism classes, correct? Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to be a journalist. And I mentioned this on a previous show. Like there were two movies that I watched. One was All the President's Men and the other one was The Killing Fields. And watching those two movies, I was like, okay, I want to be a journalist. That's it. There's no question. I got to be a journalist. So I went to university and I studied political science. I've always been interested in politics. So I thought I'll study political science. And then um, – and I did. I got very involved in the student paper. Um, I, I actually went so far as – I actually wrote a comic, a political comic strip for the, the student paper back in the day. Um, it was a little bit controversial at times, but, uh, you know, I really, really dug it. I also wrote for the local papers. Um, I used to cover town council and doing things like that. And then I just went a different way. Now, I'm, you know, I don't know if I mentioned, I'm a college professor now. So I, I decided not to be a journalist. I went a different way. But, uh, but yeah, this, this movie definitely inspired me to be a journalist. You also wanted to be a journalist, too, when you were younger, right? Um, it's something that I've always kind of, you know, dabbled with. I've, I've written some stuff in elementary school and middle school that actually got published in the paper. And I got paid for it, which is the craziest thing ever. Um, but I'm, I'm a little bit of a dilettante when it comes to journalism. I really enjoy it a lot, and I keep up with it. And, you know, all the big pieces that you see pushed out online or, you know, in print publications, like I, I always make it a point to read those regardless of where they're at, if it's the Times or the Post or the Atlantic or wherever it's at. Like I love those big feature long-form pieces. It's something I've always been into. And um, like this whole movie being completely based around journalism and, you know, like the really – you know, I'm woefully ignorant to the actual like minutia that's involved with, you know, wartime – uh, journalism and just being overseas and all, all the politics that's involved with that. And this was like a, a this was like a refresher course, like 101. Like it jumps right into it with all of the the struggles that you have back and forth between you know you trying to get your story out there and get the story of the people out there and being as you know 100 percent accurate as humanly possible versus you know the government having their own agendas and you know the the the, the locals there not wanting you to film them or there's just so much involved with it. There's so much inherent danger and. Um, I mean, this this entire movie, I don't think there was a, a, a period in this at all where I felt it was lagging or that there wasn't something incredibly interesting going on. It's just uh, from start to finish, it's just a very, very well done you know, movie about journalism of all things, which even if you don't like that as a, you know, as like one of your hobbies or if it's not something you're particularly into, I think you still would have gotten a lot out of this film. Yeah. Well, like we mentioned, you know, like, like this movie made me want to be a journalist when I, I saw this movie and something just clicked for me. Like I, I was like, I want to do this. I mean, I didn't want to go through the horrors, you know, of this film. Right. Uh, I, I didn't want to do that. But I think what completely enraptured me about this movie was just so being passionate about the truth. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that you were willing to risk everything in order to get the truth out to the world to me that's pretty powerful stuff you know and and the other thing we were discussing on a previous podcast um which you actually brought up the idea that that i tend to like movies where there's a connection between the characters 
mm-hmm. know, and I think that's pretty evident with this week's movie pick because this movie isn't even really about Cambodia. It's not even about the Khmer Rouge. It's about the friendship that develops between two people. And it's about the experiences that they share and their mutual love of journalism and this inherent need, like I said, to get the truth out to the world. And as a result, they create this lifelong bond that sort of transcends everything that goes on around them. And to me, that's what the movie's all about. So I think it fits right in with that style of movie that you mentioned that I really like. Mm-hmm. I think those are two major themes, obviously, but I wouldn't say that they're the only themes of the film. I think that like a, a global devaluation of, of quote-unquote yellow people, as they talk about, like, um, you know, people from that particular area, you know, short people whose skin don't look like ours, like, I, that's a major thing with this, where um, such a such an overt and insanely, uh, you know, just catastrophic error, quote unquote error of, of like a bomber dropping bombs in like the wrong place and literally, you know, killing off hundreds and hundreds of people, including women and children, like that type of like blatant error. And, and how it's just dismissed under the rug and, you know, to see like the, you know, the military officers and stuff basically trying to, you know, suppress this story or bringing in like their own uh, press corps to basically like, you know, quote unquote, sugarcoat the story or control the narrative. Um, there's just so much more to it that's involved with that. Um, I want to ask you this, Chris. Mm-hmm. Are you like, did, did you come out of this? How am I trying to say this? All right, so one of the things that I noticed about the, the actual journalists themselves, um, what were their names real quick? Uh, Sidney uh, Sam- Schomburg and Death Prawn. Okay, yeah. Um, and even the, the, the French and the English guys that are there as well. All right. of these guys, John Malkovich's character, for instance, um, from the very beginning of the movie, as soon as you start seeing like the first bomb drop, the one thing that I noticed with these guys is while everybody's running away from the action, they're always running towards it, right? right. When Instantly, that, when they're the, shopping the, on cameras. The guy, the guy goes by on the motorcycle with the bomb, and the bomb goes off, and they go running into it. Yeah, exactly. You're right, yeah. So, like, yeah. so it, it's like this weird where this weird phenomena where they're so invested, they're so serious about their jobs, and they and, you know they, they believe in it so wholeheartedly that um, personal safety goes out the window. They're, that's never a consideration in this. You never hear them talking about that. Um, I mean, they, they mentioned trying to get Pran out of the, the country, but they both elect to stay eventually just because this, this is something that they want to cover. But like noticing that, like, you know, when, like I said, whenever bombs are drop and you see them running towards it um, or, you know, like in the middle of the night, um, I, I keep forgetting Sam's character, Sam Watterson's character. Um, but whenever he's, he's he's literally, you know, typing up something on a typewriter for a report that he's going to have to send out and the power goes out and obviously he's really pissed off but it's in the, you know, complete dark there's absolutely no electricity whatsoever and he just keeps typing so you just hear like, you know, the the click clack of a typewriter that's how seriously he takes his job. Um, you know, where the truth in this <laughs> I, I think this is kind of like the main theme of the the movie that, you know, the truth is always going to be the most important thing and that's kind of like the thing that you're striving for the most. And uh, I don't know, I was just taken aback by, like, how seriously these people took their job. I don't know if that was, like, one of the first things that you noticed about it, but, like, it almost, like, these guys, yeah, they didn't have guns, but in some ways that's almost crazier because they're in these war zones completely unarmed. They're putting themselves in harm's way again and again, and there were multiple opportunities for them to leave, and there were different situations where they were put in, like, imminent danger, and it looked like they were going to die on several occasions, and they go right back out, which I just thought was really, really interesting. Now, I have a question for you uh, watching this. Did, did you did you find it at any point hard to follow along with the story? Um, I To an extent, I did. Uh, I, I felt there were a couple of times where I'm like, wow, I really wish there were subtitles here, you know, because the dialogue going between them. But after a few minutes, um, like, for instance, whenever um, Pran escapes and he goes to a different Chimere um, Rouge, you know, settlement or camp or whatever that treats him much better and he helps take care of the son and whatnot. Yeah. 
and whenever they actually, you know, they're talking back and forth in, you know, in that Asian language, um, I, I think it's Khmer. I'm not actually sure what it is or if it's if it's Cambodian. Or it's Cambodian, I think. Thai or whatever the actual language is. I'm, I'm and there was no there was no subtitles though, right? Yeah, but so there's no yeah. subtitles. But whenever they roll back around, you kind of understand what they're talking about. Like he's telling them, like, hey, do you want to have a cigarette? Or you know, and then he does roll back, and he you, you actually start to begin and, and understand whenever they do have that one conversation in English, all the other stuff that was in um, you know in Cambodian kind of makes sense. But, right, right. Um, I, I would have liked for there to be subtitles in some sense, but I think that's kind of the beauty of the film is where there's so little dialogue going on, you can almost understand what they're saying simply by their interactions with each other, by looking at his eyes. Like for this dude being a you know a complete novice, you know somebody who had zero experience prior to this film doing any type of acting whatsoever, it's incredible how much he was able to emanate just by his facial expressions you know like him looking back and forth and let's uh yeah let's start let's let's circle back to hang s in yours uh performance in this in a second i want to just touch base i'm glad that you're saying that the fact that you know they don't dumb it down for an audience right it's just it's kind of like laid out there because you know as you know i used to force my wife to watch all of my favorite gen x movies before i had this podcast now i get now i get you you yeah now i force you to watch them so it's it's, it's even better right but i remember i made her watch this movie it was like quite a few years ago now and i remember having a she had a lot of questions while the movie was on. We had to keep stopping it and I would explain, you know, what was going on. And it made me realize a couple of things. Um, number one, I'm a total history freak. I mean, like, I love this stuff. My wife right. always says, like, I'm a, like a walking encyclopedia. I'm, I'm, I, I did study politics, I guess, right, as we mentioned. But um, the other thing it made me realize is that it's just such not a typical Hollywood movie. Like, it doesn't dumb things down, like I said, for the audience. It doesn't even let you slow down and take it all in. It just lays out there. It's like a newsreel, right? It's like a documentary, only it doesn't have a narrator to walk you through the story, right? And that's one of the things I really love about this movie because, I mean, it would have been a lot easier if they would have just cast a bunch of Hollywood actors, simplify the script, make it easily digestible for a mainstream audience, but it doesn't do that. You know, and that's one of the things I love about this movie. So so you obviously agree with that as well? Uh, 100%. I, I, I... I don't like movies that are so incredibly dense that you come out of it and, and the range of outcomes and the range of meaning is so incredibly ambiguous that you're, you're basically left to wonder like if you have some sort of mental illness or you just plainly did not get what the movie was about. This makes you think and you're forced to pay attention. This isn't the type of movie where you can be doing something on the side and, you know, casually watching the background. Like it, it needs and it deserves your full attention. But I totally agree with you on that point. It's actually a British film, you know, and I think how you could tell that it wasn't an American produced movie. And, and here's why, because I think it was, maybe you're going to jump all over me for this. I don't know. Let's just throw it out there. I think in a, if this was a typical Hollywood movie, Sydney probably would have been, airdropped into Cambodia, probably would have took out the Khmer Rouge with an M60, you know, and, you know, busted oh Prawn out, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but, you know, I'm obviously exaggerating. But, I yeah. mean, I I honestly think at the very least, if it were an American film, it would have kind of went like this. Like, I think it would have, after the foreign journalists leave and Prawn is sent to the concentration camp, right? I think the movie would have shifted to New York and it would have been all about Sydney and his efforts to try and find Prawn and would have focused on Sydney and his efforts to find Prawn and get him out. But instead, it doesn't do that, right? It takes a complete right turn and it follows the story of Prawn in captivity. That's the way the story should go. And it Chris, did. I love that you I love that you mentioned that because in one of the bulleted notes, and I put two little asterisks about mm-hmm. it, I literally talked about how I love how it switches. It, it immediately, be, like it becomes Prawn's center stage show and it's about his story and not you know, let, let's focus on the white guy, the big, tall white guy back in America in the States. And, he, you know, he's trying to be the good guy that, you know, the white imperial leader of the world who's going to save, you know, some small, impoverished Asian man across the country, you know, across the ocean or something like I love that it did 
that he took the forefront. And it's interesting to me that he was actually nominated for you know a, a supporting actor. Whenever I felt like he was the main actor in this this movie, like this this was a film about him more so than anything. And everybody else just kind of felt you know secondary or tertiary to him. You're right. Like Sydney isn't the protagonist of the film. It's Prawn. And instead of saving the day, like you said, Sydney instead spends his time in New York trying to write letters and find his friend. It's the only thing that he really can do. Right? You know, like he can't do anything else. Now, just to come back to um, Dr. Hang Essingmore, like you mentioned, he never acted prior to this film. This was his very first acting role. And, but the reason, like, I find his performance to be one of the most harrowing performances I've ever seen in a film ever in my life. Like, his performance was so good. And one of the reasons why he's so incredibly effective in it is he actually lived this. So he was actually in a Cambodian concentration camp. He was a doc. He was a doctor, right? And because he was a doctor, he knew he had to eat insects to stay alive. And he escaped the camp, and he made it to a Red Cross refugee camp, just like in the movie. His story is Dithpron's story, so he's drawing on his own experiences when he played the part. His performance is unbelievable. It's so real, just like the film. The film is real. It just feels like a documentary almost, right? It's just so real. But I, oh yeah, I, I thought his performance in this movie was incredible. He was like discovered at like a. Some event in Hollywood, like they found him. He was a Cambodian, you know, that came over to the to the states or whatever. And 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 the the director Roland Joffe said, "Man, you got to play this part. You got to play this part because he had trouble finding a Cambodian actor to play the part." And like I say, his ability, Doctor Hengesengor's ability to to pull on his own, you know, draw from his own experiences, just just made it harrowing. He went through that. Yeah. that those scenes, it's like, hey, I've already done this. You know, I, I don't have to act this. I was here. You know. So I don't know, it just oh, it was just incredible. His performance was great. And again, when you take into a fact into account the fact that he's not even an actor. A typical American movie, again, not to like be stereotypical, but I think a typical American movie wouldn't have done it like that. I think mm-hmm. they would have hired professional actors, they'd have attached some names to it. There were names attached to this project early on. Um, even names like Dustin Hoffman wanted to play the lead role. And and the, when the director got involved, he was like, No, 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 no. We gotta just get good actors to play these parts. To make it real, you know. So, um, so some themes that are involved in the in the movie that I want to touch base on. Number one, like I said, and we kind of mentioned this already. And this is a story, right? It's not like a Hollywood uh, typical Hollywood movie. It's not a Sam Waterston film, you know. It's not even an, a, a, a Hang S in your film, you know. Even though it's fantastic, it, it's it's this is about the story. It, it's all about the story. The story drives the film. So I think that's good. And to me, the biggest theme in this movie is, like I mentioned earlier, friendship and loyalty. You know, the fact that Prawn stayed, you know, like I just, it's just, it's mind boggling. And I remember when, when I first saw this movie and I remember saying to my mom, I was like, cause she had watched the movie with me. And I said, like, why did, why did Prawn stay? I don't get it. They, they got him out. They got his family out. And at the, you know, at that scene with the helicopter and even getting him out, like somebody else had taken his place and they couldn't get his family out. And then they were able to get his family out. And mm-hmm. instead of getting on the, the helicopter, he's like, no, I'm staying. And, and and you just see that, that how Sydney's torn there too because he like he wants him to go but he wants him to stay too because Prawn's mm-hmm. useful to him right you know he's a journalist right. he has lots of connections on the, you know on the ground there to really get the story out so in a way he wants him to stay right now obviously he feels guilty about it later and that's another whole thing but just the fact that he stayed and but the reason he said no I, as he said to him I'm a journalist too Sydney I'm a journalist too I have to stay. You right, know? and that point that you just mentioned. Oh, okay, so man. you're talking about the friendship between the two being the major theme. I'm not saying that that's not a theme, but I think more so Pran's motivations lie more so towards like the his his 
um, his duty, his objective duty to the truth and to his country as a whole. So I don't think it's so much, you know, him and Sydney's relationship as it is he feels a greater calling. That's, you know, he was a journalist before Sydney got there and he remained a journalist afterwards or at least had some some sort of, you know, uh, involvement with that field. But, you know, like he, he had met his calling before Sydney and this was just him kind of carrying on what he had always done, I think. I agree. Like, I think, yeah. that, I think that's the main right. message that we're trying to get out of this is is the truth. Yes, it's it, you're 100% true. And, and I guess I should just re- rephrase what I said. I think the friendship and loyalty comes from the fact that they're both committed to getting the truth out. And so as a result, that's what drives their friendship and loyalty. And that scene when they all band together and try and make the passport for Prawn when they're holed up inside the French embassy, mm-hmm. like unbelievable. Like, just, like, talk about suspense. You know, like, I want more suspense. They're trying to get this guy's passport. They can't get the picture done. It's not working. And then when he's in the concentration camp, too, um, Prawn stays focused by, remember, he speaks to Sydney in his head. Mm-hmm. Right? He's like, Sydney, this is what happens. You know, if you confess that you're educated, they take you away, and you, you never see those people again. And, you know, I've I've got to pretend I'm dumb, Sydney, and this is what I'm going to do. Like, and then I think the end of the movie, too, the friendship and loyalty, which we'll come back to the ending in a bit, because I think that's one of the key parts about the movie. Um, also, the idea of that whole year zero stuff, you know, that everything starts fresh. Yes. There, there's no wow. past. Cold, like Cold oh, 101. Exactly. Seriously. I know. And the, like I mentioned, the intellectuals are killed because they can't be trusted. And Prawn pretends he's a taxi driver, right? He's like, oh, I don't, I don't know English or whatever. And then the Khmer Rouge, like you mentioned, the Khmer Rouge camp leader speaks to him in French. Remember? He's like, voulez-vous français? And mm-hmm. uh, and then he catches him at night listening to Voice of America on the radio. So then he knows that he's educated, you know? Oh, man. But he sees that Prawn's like good with his son. So he leaves him the money and the map. Oh, man. It's just so good. And that, that oh, all those. So there's so much that is so true to what happened to Dr. Hang Essingor. Remember that scene when the guy steps on the landmine and he's holding the baby? And he's like, yeah, was, give me the baby. Was, give me the baby. No, man, that was hard. Oh, <laughs> and, the, and the baby died. So just to, to come back, Dr. Hang Essingor, the actor, who played him, in his real life, he was a doctor, obviously, right? So he's a doctor in Cambodia. But the thing was, when the Khmer Rouge came in, they couldn't let him anyone know that he was a doctor. Because if they knew he was a doctor, they would kill him because he's educated, right? So he, yep. he couldn't let on that he was a doctor. His wife was pregnant, went into childbirth, and she couldn't notify him to get him there to help her because she was having complications during childbirth. Because if they found out that he was a doctor, they would kill him. So she did not call for him. And instead, both her and the baby died in childbirth. Wow. <laughs> so because he couldn't, they couldn't reveal. She basically saved his life by not revealing the fact that he's a doctor, right? And so he's drawing on that in those scenes, like where the baby dies. Like, it's just so unbelievable. His his performance, like I've said before, is the, one of the most harrowing performances. That scene, remember there's like that little, she's like a teenage girl. And she's, because they get them young, right? They cult 101, like you said, they get them young, they get them, you know, converted, they brainwash them and everything. And she was like in charge of basically putting plastic bags over people's heads and taking them away and having them killed. And that mm-hmm. scene where they do together and she's trying to find out if he's smart and she's trying to break him and she's trying to, you know, go on and on with him. And she, they get done the scene and Ingor walks away and he says to the director, that girl's not acting. She has evil in her heart. I just know what I can see. Like, he's just, it's too real. It's too real. She was too good, you know? Like, the whole thing is just a harrowing experience. Just, like I said, it's just all so real. Oh, man, oh, man. So, so, so good. So, the idea of, um, that we mentioned about, obviously, journalism and the truth, I'd like to cycle back to that. Um, I mentioned earlier, and you did too, um, you know, about being a journalist, wanting to be a journalist when you're younger. And that was one of the things that got me, you know, about this movie was just this, I couldn't believe 
believe that people, and you know, I'm 14 years old when I see the movie, right? So I just can't believe that people would be this committed to getting the truth out to the world. Like they're willing to put their lives at risk. You mentioned like in the scenes where the bad stuff's going, they're running into it, you know, because, and Prawns, like I mentioned, stayed in Cambodia. He could have got out, didn't go. Nope, mm-hmm. want to stay, you know? And, um, you know, I don't know. It's just, there's something about that that just really, really got to me. Because I think if you fast forward to 2017, you know, now you've got a situation where it feels like truth is being twisted and bent. And the idea of the truth is being questioned all over the place. And I just wonder if anyone today, so this is, I'm going to ask you this question. You just watched this movie this week, right? So watching this movie in 2017, can it move people still to this day, watching it for the first time, to be motivated to sort of join the ranks of the media and driven by the desire to get the truth out there? Or is this kind of journalism not possible anymore in today's world? I don't want to say it's not possible, but unfortunately, I think there's a vast devaluing of genuinely good reporting and journalism. I mean, we've seen that with just the average consumer is complete lack of interest in actually paying for content and um i mean it's not a glamorous job at all you know what i mean there's like with the the whole dawn of the social media era which i I hate using social media as like this blanket term for everything that's wrong with millennials but um everything is more instantaneous everything is more off the cuff and you get kudos and you get credit and you get thumbs up and likes and stuff for being you know as you know out there and you know just i'm struggling to find the adjective that i want to use to describe this but the more um loud and obnoxious and attention grabbing you are you're that's how you're rewarded in-depth stuff like this now is is taking more and more of a back page you know or a back seat with each passing year i think just because the general public does not value this whatsoever yeah i yeah i agree i think it's more about you know click baity stuff and people wanting to read stuff that sort of adheres to their own views of the world and their own beliefs than it does to actually like truth doesn't mean so much I strongly believe I don't want to get too political you remember I'm Canadian I don't have a dog in the race in your country. Wait, are you are you Canadian? Yeah, I'm hard to believe. I know. I know. Oh, I don't think in you kitchen. mentioned that. Before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but as an outsider looking in, I still believe this, and this is what I still believe. I believe in about 10, 15 years, they're going to write a book or maybe make it into a movie about what's going on in your country right now. And I swear to God, I think the hero is going to be a journalist. That's just my. Thing. I I like that. I don't know. I, I do just, like that. That's just. I, but I'm you know, I feel strongly about this journalism. So John Malkovich, you mentioned too. What an incredible actor he is! Like I really, I really man, like man. Malkovich. I didn't realize. Well, he. I mean, he's been in some other movies that I've really enjoyed, like namely Rounders. I love that mm-hmm. movie, even though it has some glaring flaws into it. Um, but he's just a really. I don't want to say a character actor. That's not fair. Um, he's just always played really interesting parts. Really interesting parts. I mean, do you have one that sticks out to you as far as as Malkovich goes? I like this one. And it's not just because we're talking about it. It's one of my favorite movies. But here's why. Because I think at the beginning of the movie, remember, he's got like a maxi pad soaked in like ice and he's putting it on his head because he's hungover. And he he just seems like this one note character. He comes out, he's like this hippy dippy guy. He doesn't really care about anything at all. Right. But then it gets to the scene. As I mentioned before, when they're trying to make the passport photo for Prawn, and he's trying to get the negative, and he starts getting all frustrated, and he just starts lashing out, he starts, and you realize he's actually a guy with a lot of passion. He is a really good actor. I like him a lot. I, but like I said, he's just so unusual, and his style is so unusual, and his look is so unusual, it's tough for him to be sort of a leading man type in that typical Hollywood, you know, quote-unquote Hollywood movie like we were mentioning earlier. <coughs> but in something like this, man, he just shines, you know. Just shines. The other thing I wanted to touch on, the other thing I would mention too, and remember we were talking about films versus movies? 
Mm-hmm. last week and we're going to explore that further in you know an upcoming podcast for sure to me the reason why they're called movies you, you know movie is short for moving picture right so that's why they're called movies right and to okay. me obviously it's moving pictures because these pictures move and form you know action but for me it's always been the best movies are the ones that actually move you you know and to me this movie obviously moves me in lots of different ways i want to talk a little bit about the end of the movie because the because this so this movie uh, widely considered by many to be you know, a, a great movie. Critics love the movie. You know, mm-hmm. audiences love the movie. People, you know, of all walks of life are like, man, this is a really good movie. But the one area of the movie that has received a lot of criticism is the end of the movie. I'm one who loves the end of the movie, but the end of the movie was a little bit controversial, I would say. I mean, it's drawn the most criticism, we'll say, of the movie. And I think some people find it to be a bit contrived. Um, some people have mentioned that, you know, using the song Imagine, it's the wrong song for the end of the movie. I completely disagree. Um, I think... The use of the song "Imagine" is perfect at the end of this movie. I don't, what are your thoughts on it? Because like, again, that's the one criticism of this movie that I've always heard. Ah, the ending is contrived, you know. So, are, do you think it's contrived insofar that they're basically, you know, through the dialogue, the interaction, whatever, Pran and um, uh, in Sydney, yeah, Sydney. God, I I don't know. I can't remember that name tonight. Um, whenever the two of them actually meet back again for the first time. Uh, you know, after he had been in prison for all that time. And he basically says, you know, you have nothing to forgive or nothing to be forgiven for, mm-hmm. essentially. And, like, are, are you talking about that being contrived? That it's I basically think, them exonerating him for no, everything that he's done? I think the biggest criticism is the song itself. Using that song was like, why would you use that song at the end of this movie? Oh, my God. You know, like, it's just how contrived. You're going to play Imagine at the end. Oh, of course. You know, that's, that's the feeling that I've got from a lot of people that I've talked to about it. But, um... Like I said, I think the song's perfect. Um, I don't have a problem with the song either, Chris. I really don't. And, you know, it, it touches on, you know, in this song it talks about, like, you know, imagine there's no heaven, there's no religion. It's basically like one world, everybody living as one. And, you know, there was a genocide here where two million plus people died in Cambodia and Vietnam. So, well, I, like, yeah, I think the thing is, if you, if, you, if you listen to the DVD commentary, the director, Rola Joffe, he makes a statement that the lyrics in the song are like something that Pol Pot would write. He's the head of the Khmer Rouge, right? The fact that there's no heaven, no hell, no religion, no class, etc. And I think that some people might have taken that to mean that the song's the wrong song for the ending of the movie. I don't think it is. I mean, Joffrey's the director. He chose the song, so obviously he felt it was right. And and like I said, I think a lot of people think it's kind of cliche. But for me, like I said, it's perfect. And I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the podcast before, Yancy, but Imagine is my favorite song of all time. Is it? Yep. My number one favorite song of all time is Imagine by John Lennon. Hands down. Interesting. So that's one reason, obviously, I like it in the movie. But the reason why it resonates with me, too, is in the context of the end of the movie, like, that song has always been about one thing, and that's peace. You know, if there's no religion, no countries, no greed, no hungry, none of this would happen. None of this would have happened, right? But it's not that, that's not reality. The reality is, at the end of the movie, you just got two people that despite being their different religions, different ethnic backgrounds, different languages, different cultures that they share a similarity and we mentioned before that intense desire to get the truth out to the world and it made them forge a bond of that friendship and loyalty i don't know it just transcends everything sydney's obviously deeply sorry you know for letting prawn stay there you know because it led to him getting captured right let's touch on that really quickly just to wrap things up yeah sure um they don't they don't directly uh address it during the film the they don't have in even sydney says afterwards where he wishes he had an actual discussion they actually you know they had mentioned it a few times as far as prawn staying in cambodia but they never had a full out you know between 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 sydney and prawn you mean 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah. I think that's why it's so important. So. So. Don't. So they never. You know. He even says that we never had that. But like you mentioned, you know, he's not going to tell him to stay, but he's also not going to tell him to leave. He, he's not going to tell him, hey, you know, I'm getting you out of the country. Here's your family. Like, but I really need you here. You know, he acknowledges the fact that he obviously he needs Pran, and Pran has saved him. You know, in the course of this film, he saves the, all of these people multiple times. And like you mentioned, he's connected to the area. He has his connections. He can get them out of situations. Um, but it's really hard to see your family leave in a you know in a chopper and you're staying there. So like, do you think um, like it, it's hard for me watching this movie because I always wonder like which side made the movie? You know what I mean? Or is it the side that's trying to show Sydney as like this compassionate person who really loved him? And or are they trying to show that like there was a duality there where both sides were complicit and you know him being stuck over there? Like I'm, I'm I always wonder what the motivations were, and I wonder like some of the the lines of dialogue like were those true like levels of dialogue that actually you know happened in real life? Was was Pran really, you know, did he really not have like a full out discussion? Did he really like? you know entirely forgive him at the very end of it whenever they finally met up again like those are things that i wish i i kind of knew and like saw maybe if i do a little bit more research we can probably uncover some of that stuff but um like you you see multiple motivations here so i'm not saying like this is a biased film where they're trying to push one you know one opinion of of how things went down but uh, it they did leave it a little bit more open-ended than i wish they would have i would have like to have seen more of Pran's actual input as well, to why I he was there. I think, well, so there's the scene with Al, that's uh, John Malkovich's character, in the bathroom. Remember when Sidney goes and gets the award, gets the journalist award and he gets up there and then he goes in the bathroom and then Al's in there and Al comes in and goes, hey man, you know, yeah. you, 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 you're to blame for Pran. You're the one that's responsible for him being over yeah, there. Yeah, nice job because you wanted this award. Yeah, you just, you're just, you just used him just to get this award and all this and it really cuts close to the bone for Sidney. You can tell. Because he feels conflicted, right? And that's that scene is really, really pivotal to the film. Because then, because I still came away from it thinking that Sydney, he didn't, he didn't. Prawn knew what he was doing, and and and, and so Sydney was, you know, uh, I don't but, know, I don't know if he, if he encouraged him to do it for ulterior motives to try and win an award or try and get the, you know, I I don't know. I I want to believe that he didn't, and I think part of the reason is it didn't because it didn't come across at least in Sam Watterson's performance, it didn't come across as guilt. When he was talking to his wife and his kids and saying, and they're like, we know, we know he's dead. And he's like, no, he's not. He's not. That's not true. It's not true. It's not true. It's not. And you could tell, like, to me, it wasn't like it was guilty. It was like, no, he truly believed he's alive. He's out there and he's going to come back. And I, I don't know. I just, I, I, See, I, I like I to believe that, that it wasn't. Same, I, not to cut you off. I'm yeah, sorry. No, no, I, no, I interpreted that same scene where he was talking to the wife as almost like he didn't want to admit to himself that Ron was likely dead and that, you know, this woman was now a widow with what was it? Six or seven children. Right. And like, I, I do think that there was a lot of guilt associated with that. And, you know, to be honest with you, like I, I did grapple back and forth with whether or not Sydney is complacent in what actually happened or complicit rather is what I'm looking for. Um, you know, because, you know, he, he justifies it saying like, you know, I wrote hundreds of letters. I wrote 700 letters. Yeah. That's really nice. But, you also didn't go back. You know what I mean? And like that's one thing I think about too is like he could have gone back. You know, he left the United States once the story was done or, you know, a after his, you know, tour was up basically. And, you know, he had every opportunity. That area has been tumultuous for the last 35 years. Like there were opportunities for him to return back to Cambodia and he didn't. So like, but it, but it, I, don't, he... I don't know all the information, but like that's what I'm saying. Like I, I grapple with this. Like I don't think he's blameless in this is what I'm saying. Well, they, they, they made all the foreign journalists get out. If he, he wouldn't be able to get on a plane and fly back in there, he'd be killed. So then you'd have two dead people. So he, he, his best thing he could do is from the outside trying to find him. And even if he lands there, you know, he goes over to Phnom Penh. Where's he going to go? Where's he going to look for him? 
all these concentration camps. You're going to walk up to the door of the concentration camp and go, uh, hey, is there a prawn here? You know what I mean? Like, what's he going to do, right? So it's it's really conflicting both ways. Not that I'm defending, you know, leaving him there or anything like that. It's just there's so much conflicting that's going on. But I think the thing that's interesting is, like you said, he writes like literally hundreds of letters and trying to, to, to get him, you know, to get him back. And then they get back to the I love the end of the movie. I, I really do. I, I don't care what people think. I think it's great. Because he gets back after doing all that, writes all these letters, and Pran just has one line. And he says, there's nothing to forgive. Yep. And then the song starts to play. The camera pulls away. And to me, this is where it gets me. Then it shows the real-life photos of Sidney Schomburg and Dith Pran. And remember how he told you before, I said, when I watch the movie, every time I watch it, I cry? That's when I cry because it pulls back and it's like, I kind of forget. And I'm watching this movie and I'm so involved in this story and the characters and the journey that they take. But when it pulls back and when it shows those pictures and it shows the real life Sidney Schomburg and the real life Death Prawn, what they really look like, mm-hmm. it gets me. It makes me cry because I realize it, I'm snapped back into reality and I realize this isn't just a movie. This actually happened. This happened to two people. Right. Two human beings lived this. I love this movie. I love the characters. I love the story. I love the ending. I love it all. I'll say this. My, like you're talking about with like certain scenes, like, you know, whenever the little boy, they stepped on the landmine and the little boy was killed, or, you know, or, or just to see, you know, uh, the hospital and there's just tons of wounded and people missing appendages. And there's a lot of grotesqueness and, you know, even, and we didn't even mention it by name, but like the actual killing fields that he walks across and you just see, you know, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of skulls and bones and it's it's really you know it's just it's very disheartening but um those scenes right there like it was it was kind of weird because i didn't i didn't get emotional just seeing those i got emotional seeing his reaction to them afterwards because he was so steadfast and he was so he had such a sense of um just like inner strength i guess like he was resolute i guess is the word that i'm looking at where like he's seeing like these insane atrocities and i'm not saying that like he didn't care or that it didn't affect him but like he's he's so weathered in this that he like he's he's almost accepted it you know what i mean like mm-hmm. he's accepted and he's going to continue being strong but i mean were, were you going to jump in on that no i agree 100 percent. It, 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 it's hard to it's hard to explain you know obviously this we have lots of spoilers in a show like this if you know if you're listening <laughs> yeah. obviously we were in the end but that scene when he falls into the water and he realizes he's in a pool of basically, you know, rotting corpses. And the thing is, like you said, the horror of that scene isn't even the fact that there's dead bodies all around him and skeletons and skeletal remains and rotting corpses. That's not even the horror. The horror is his reaction to it. That physical, he shakes and just like looking at it all and to realize where he is and that these are his people and everything. And it's his reaction to it all. It's just mind boggling. Like it's just that's what that's where the horror of the scene comes from him, not from what's going on around him. And like I said before, like I think a Hollywood movie would play more on the grossness of what he where he was in, and they didn't really play on that. You didn't even see a whole lot there. It wasn't very it wasn't a very graphic scene, really. If you go back and watch it again, you're like, well, that's actually not very graphic at all. It's what's graphic about it, it's his face. That's what's graphic, and that's where the horror comes out of. And I think that's what made his performance so good. It made the movie so good. I love this movie. I agree. Oh, man. So good. So you you obviously like this movie. This was the best one of all the ones that I made you watch, so, so I've redeemed myself a little bit. I'd say you redeemed yourself. I'll, I mean, I didn't think about a rating ahead of time. If you look on IMDb, they gave it a uh, 8.5 out of 10, mm-hmm. I think, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. It has like a 90 
93 or 96, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give it like a solid 9.6. This is one of the best yeah. movies I've ever seen. It's up there yeah. with like Schindler's List as far as like the br- the brutality and the futility of war and, you know, uh, you know, genocide and just like how awful people can be and how good and, and how you know resilient and upbeat people can be, too. So, I mean, it honestly, Chris, this was like one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah, me too. I've always loved The Killing Fields and it's really tough to give a movie a 10, but this is right up against it. So I think like a 95 percent is is right there. So we both agree on it. So that's good. Okay. Well, now let's have some fun with Yancey. Okay. So, uh, do you have some trivia you want to throw me? I don't know really much about trivia about this movie, but, uh, but go ahead. So, um, you, as always, you always like ruin like three or four of my trivia questions <laughs> in the middle of the, oh, <laughs> yeah, but such is life. Uh, so my first question was going to be, I was going to ask you if you knew what, um, hangs, actual occupation was before this before the Khmer Rouge occupation right. you said a doctor do you he happen to know specifically what type of doctor he was he was a gynecologist he was an obstetrician mm. oh sorry very close though. I think that kind of counts on <laughs> I'll, I'll give it to you like I said I, I didn't even think you would know that he was a doctor to be yeah. honest with you but yeah he actually served like in the, he was a medical doctor and everything like he, he'd been helping people his entire life which is kind yep. of interesting yep so he uh Hang was the second non-professional actor to ever win an Academy Award. Can you name the first person? I'll give you a hint. It was back in 1946. Oh yeah, it was. Um, oh, was that movie where the guys, the guy loses the arm in the war and comes back? The best years of our lives. What the hell was his name? Got uh, the movie. Oh god, I can't remember his name. It escapes me. It's a uh, Harold Russell, and it is in the best years of our yeah, lives. So yeah, I remember you that. Were, you were right there. Yeah, yeah, they got they got an amputee to play that. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, good job though. I'll give you half credit for that. Yeah, half a point. Yet. All right, I'm sorry. Cool. Very nice. Yeah. All right, so uh, we talked about John Malkovich. We both are fans. I'm a fan. Uh, love John Malkovich. Um, oh, he's he plays awesome. Al. He plays Al Rockoff yes. or Rokoff in this film. Yeah. Uh, he did not receive any Academy Award nominations for The Killing Fields, but he did receive a nomination for actor and supporting role in another film of that same year. What was the name of the film? Oh, wasn't it? Uh, was it Crimes of the Heart? Is that what it was? You're close. Place, with places in the heart? Is that what places it is? Places in the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that scene here. Yeah. Very, very nice. Okay. Yeah. See, I knew you would do good at these. I try to keep it pretty close to this because I know it's like a, you know, this isn't the type of thing where you'd have like a ton of like pop culture sites and stuff like doing trivia on it or something, you know? Right. It's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty oblique, but. Um, so Sam Watterson, he earned an Academy Award nomination for this film. I don't think he, no, he did not win. He did not win. Uh, he's, he's mostly known for his work as the character on Law and Order. Can you name the character? Was it, oh, was it Briscoe and Logan? Was he McCoy? Was it McCoy? Was that his name? McCoy? Yep. Jack? Yes! Yes! Very good. Very I used to good. watch that when I used to work at the bar late at night. I'd come home and they used to play it late at night on A&E and I would watch it. Oh, man, I can't believe I remember McCoy. Yep. Oh, yes. So, Chris, um, can you name me the capital of Cambodia? Uh, it's Phnom Penh. And can you spell it? Uh, P, uh, P-H-N-O-M-P-H-E-N? Pretty close. Oh, okay. Pretty, pretty, pretty close. I think you're one letter off, but I'm going to give you like 90% for that. Right. That's actually pretty good. Oh, I was going to ask you first, the question originally was, can you yeah. name the capital of Cambodia? But you kept mentioning it during the show, right. so obviously you knew what the capital oh, so they, was. Oh, so they just said, you got to spell it. Oh, <laughs> now I was so like, spell go. it. Oh, so there you go. Okay. So <laughs> the good thing is that you enjoyed this movie, and that's a really good yep. thing. So hopefully the next movie that I spring on you won't be... Uh, will be too disappointing, but I got another good one for you, I think, for next time. But uh, listen, uh, so next week, I think what we might do is uh, we mentioned last week, we brought kind of up this idea of this 
the concept of films versus movies. And, and then it just kind of sprung something with us. So I got talking with our good buddy, uh, Caveman, Derek Myers, and he said that, you know, it, it's it's something that is close to him, too. He believes in the, 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 the idea of films versus movies. So I was thinking maybe next week we might uh, see if we can get Caveman to come back and join us. And um, and what we'll do is we'll uh, we'll have him join us. We'll talk about films versus movies. You know, what's the difference between the two? We'll give examples of the whole thing. So how, what do you think about doing that? I think uh, Caveman is more than willing and capable so uh I, I said we do it it was a topic chris as soon as you mentioned i was like oh like yeah, I really that's interesting yeah that. yeah so that's what we're going to do so if you want to reach out to us on twitter you can find us at yancey eden or at c mcbrien and mcbrien is ien if you go to popgoesyourworld.com all of our contact information is there you can send us an email or all our twitter uh, you know information is there and all the episodes are there as well uh, obviously you find us on itunes and stitcher radio and i'll tell you what if you enjoy the show uh please just take a minute and just leave a review for the show wherever you download and listen to it that would be really great until next time, this is Chris McBrien for Yance Eaton saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 